Well, today we are seven days into October, and I'm wondering if you have even thought about who you are going to invite to your home for the October Grace Challenge. We have been talking a lot about grace this year and how that applies. I was in the Alive class this morning and very encouraged to hear all of the ways in which people were beginning to understand grace and its significance and its impact in our lives. And one of the ways that we do that is by showing grace to other people. So, you know, September, September's challenge was for the, the, the reclusive folks. The October challenge is for our, our extroverts, our outgoing people. Uh, I hope you're giving consideration to who you might open your home to. Have you ever thought about asking your class leaders over for dinner? I mean, think about it. They organize things. They put things together. They make sure everybody's informed and communicated with. That, that, that would be a good thing to do. What about inviting the elders over to dinner? Usually people get nervous when the elders invite them into the elders' office. Did you ever invite elders over just to say thank you for doing what you do? Thank you for being such great leaders, unified in spirit and in purpose. You ever thought about doing something like that? And maybe some of you have. That's a good thing. But but expand your vision a little bit. Think about who you might invite. Uh, I've got some different ideas if you want to ask me. Uh, but there are many opportunities to open your home and, more importantly, to open your heart. And I hope that you'll take the opportunity to do that. We're in a series on Sunday mornings talking about the overflow which is how grace looks in our lives. In other words, what our lives look like after they've been impacted and affected by Jesus Christ. And we've been thinking about this from a, a letter that Peter wrote, or part of a letter, rather. Second Peter chapter 1 is the, the key text, uh, verses 5 through 8. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, uh, Peter says this, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Now, I want you to understand, he's not talking here about adding in the sense of earning. He's talking about adding in the sense of growing. Jesus loves each and every one of you just as you are. As the old song goes, just as I am, he will receive you. But there is no one that Jesus has ever met that left the same person after meeting Jesus, they changed, they grew, they matured, they, they became more like him. If, if they wanted to follow him, the same is true for us. And so Peter says here, reflecting no doubt on his own life and his own journey with Jesus, he says this, add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now look what he says, verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's convicting. Have you ever considered, as you've learned about Jesus, have you learned the stories about Jesus? What have you, what have you done with that? How has that changed your life? Has it caused you to be more effective and more productive? Or are you less effective and less productive? Hopefully the, the, the first is true, that, that as the closer we get to Jesus, the more effectiveness his life, his power begins to take a hold of our lives. Peter describes what this life it looks like that is immersed in Jesus. 
to go on a little review, go back in time just a few weeks. He, he says it starts with faith. In other words, you have to start by trusting God. You've got to start by just basing all of your decisions on your trust in him. That's challenging to do because there's so many elements of the future that we cannot predict. And I'm convinced that's why we cannot because we are needing or God wants us to trust him uh, more than we trust ourselves. Secondly, we build on that foundation with the this idea of goodness, reflecting the goodness to others that God has reflected to us and letting that goodness impact us so that we bring an air of exceptionalism in whatever we do, whether you're a student, whatever job you work at, uh, all of these uh Areas of our lives, we should let God's goodness permeate each and every part. And then last week we talked about knowledge, which we said was seeking God's wisdom, the wisdom that only comes from God. So the next quality that Peter adds in this list is the aspect of self-control. Self-control is not a hard one to preach on. It's a lot harder one to live out. It's not one you have to understand the Greek terminology or the original language it's very easily self and 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 perfectly self-defined to control the self peter learned the hard way that he had some issues with self-control he had to learn how to control his tongue he had to learn that, that maybe just because he had a thought didn't mean that he had to say the thought peter had to learn that the hard way Jesus would rebuke him at least on one occasion and and sternly say to him, get behind me, Satan, because Peter was allowing Satan to use his tongue to try to keep Jesus from doing to, to living out his mission. Peter had to learn the hard way about self-control. Remember the, the story in the, at the toward the end of John, John chapter 18. I call it the story of the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, they are in the garden. Jesus is the crowd. The mob has come to arrest him. Judas, his friend, has come to betray him. And Peter, what does he do? Does he just stand there and take it? No, he does not. He takes a sword. And why do I call that the good, the bad, and the ugly? Because there's three main characters in that story. The good, of course, being Jesus. The bad, of course, being Judas. And the ugly being a man named Malchus who left that story with one less ear than he entered into it. That was because of Peter's lack of self-control, his lack of understanding, his lack of yielding control to Jesus' purposes instead of what he had in mind for Jesus. The truth is that most of us do not have trouble with self-control when it comes to someone else. We can quite easily, quite astutely, with our air of superiority, point out where other people need to practice a little better self-control. That is not what I'm preaching about this morning. It's not others' self that I want you to control. See, the issue really is the practicing of controlling yourself. Controlling ourself is another matter entirely. But don't take it from me. Take it from this little video. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one. So then you'll have to. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right.
I'm going to go do something, and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. <laughs> It's really cute to watch kids go through this. I mean, they all had different sort of reactions. Some of them had absolutely no self-control, just started eating it immediately. Some of them took little nibbles just here and there, just trying to just nibble at the edges of it. Some of them just did everything in the world to try to distract themselves from it. Self-control is one of those things that we know is difficult. And it's like I said, it's cute to watch kids go through that. It's a little harder when you re realize that the struggle does not stop when you get older and grow into adulthood. Sadly, many adults struggle with self-control. Oh, we, we hide it a little better, and it's usually not with things like marshmallows. Marshmallows aren't particularly tempting to me, but you put a couple spicy chicken sandwiches in that room, I'll chow them down. There are other things that I have self-control issues with that I'm not going to share with you. I'll bet you have some too. There are things that tempt us and that draw us away from God and that the enemy will try to exploit. The first thing we quickly realize is this. Self-control, I'm sorry, that, that your flesh is both powerful and weak. It's powerful in that it's very influential in how you act. 
Hey, ever been in a family situation? Maybe you're driving, going somewhere on family vacation, and someone is just, they just got attitude. They are just all sorts of attitude. And, and you realize that that person needs to eat, and quickly. And the, I think the, the, the Greek term for that is hangry. And you, you get, it, it changes every bit of your attitude, your perspective, how you treat other people, all of because of the lack of something right here. That's how powerful and influential your flesh is. There are some of you, when you get tired, you, you, you begin to just slowly drift and, and you are fighting the battle against letting your body go to sleep, but it is an impossible, nearly impossible to fight. Have you ever tried to stay awake during a sermon? And you know you should stay awake. You know the preacher sees you. You know he's watching. You know God's watching. But you can't. It's just, just lacking and just sitting. And it's so warm in here. And the pews are so comfortable. And some of you will come up to me and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm on this medicine or I'm on this different schedule. And I, and I understand that. I'm not giving you permission, by the way. If I see any sleepers, know that I will call you out. But we... We understand that, that the flesh is very powerful. Think of this, that Jesus, on the last night of his life, as he's going through what is no doubt one of the spiritually most difficult things any human being would ever face, and he's praying intently, and he's asking God, please, take this cup from me. The scripture of Luke says that he prays, and sweat is pouring out like blood drops are pouring out from him a actual medical condition that indicated a very high amount of stress. The closest people to Jesus in this world, the people that had followed him for three years, were there with him, and he had one simple request. Please, pray with me. And yet the scripture tells us that they were yielding to sleep, because they were tired, they were exhausted. And Jesus said to them in Matthew 26, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We understand that the flesh is powerful and it yields a, uh, takes a lot of control of the way we act, the way we behave, the way we think. And you would think that our brain, that our mind could control this body, but this body has a great amount of influence and power. And when Jesus says it's weak, he's meaning there that it's often exploited by the enemy. Now think about this. Uh, Some people go as far as to say, well, the flesh is all sinful. Well, I, I don't buy that because God created the flesh. God created us physically to be human beings, to have physical desires. I don't think God creates sinful people and sinful things. But the flesh is so powerful that the enemy will use it and often exploit it. Think about this. We talked about God's goodness and how we have those 10,000 taste buds. You know, eating is not a sin. God created food to be enjoyed. However, gluttony is a sin. You see how the enemy will take a fleshly desire and twist it and warp it into something which is sinful? Sex in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is something that God designed. It's not sinful. 
in the right context in the covenant of marriage. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be a blessing. It's to actually draw a husband and wife closer together. It's not sinful. But the enemy will use and try to exploit the, the sexual desires to get us to do sinful things like to lust, to commit adultery. There's even sexual sins which go beyond just sinning, just being regular sins. They sin against our own body. Uh, fornication, homosexuality. Uh, these are these are sins that the Bible is clear about that start with a desire that's in the flesh. And if that desire is uncontrolled, it will lead to sin. Sleeping is not a sin. But laziness and idleness certainly is. So just to understand that, that the flesh is powerful, and yet it's, a, it's got weakness that the enemy will try to exploit. And he'll do it with every single person. Every single person has weak points in here and in their lives. So my question is, are you aware of those weak points? Are you doing anything about those weak points? Are, are you working to make sure that you're controlling yourself? This leads us to understand that self-control is painful. Whenever you make the decision to control yourself, you're making a decision that is going to leave you lacking. It's going to leave you unsatisfied. Uh, if you've ever taken on a diet or exercise program, you realize that what you're trying to do is limit the flesh. And that's hard to do. I mean, you can technically know I need this many calories, and if I cut this many calories, I should be to lose this amount of weight, or if I exercise this much and I do this many things. But, but when you begin to do those things, your flesh fights back a little, doesn't it? Hey, wait a second, where's all the food we wanted? Hey, why are we running so fast? The, the, the flesh is hard to control. I was thinking about this with our, not this month's grace challenge, but last month's grace challenge. Um, I got back on Facebook on, yesterday, and uh, I was just pouring through some things, and I, <laughs> I remarked, I was like, I'm not sure anyone took the grace challenge for September. <laughs> no, I'm jesting. I know there are a few people who did, but I was thinking about that. Why? Because, I mean, so much good can come from something like that. But then I realized it's exactly what I'm talking about. It, social media is designed to, to cause an addiction. I mean, uh, on, a, on a psychological level, it's designed to hit the brain with a dopamine hit. And your brain goes, hey, 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 we need to check that. Hey, 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 we need to open it. Hey, 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 your, your, your flesh is very powerful. To being able to pull yourself away from that is really a self-control issue. In fact, someone shared that with me. They said, this has been a very uh, eye-opening thing in terms of understanding my real need of self-control in this area. No matter what decision, when you try to control the flesh, you w part of you will be displeased. It's a part of breaking yourself. I don't know how many of you have horses or have had horses um, I do not currently have horses. That's a lifetime decision for me. Um, but when we were younger, my mom and stepdad decided they wanted horses. And so I was introduced to that whole world. And I didn't really like it. 
Because these were very large, very powerful animals with very small brains. And, and horses can be trained and, and can do powerful, majestic things. But you see, we brought, bought a horse that needed braking. And that was a long, arduous process. And it wasn't completely done at a set point. It, it was a gradual point. And, and I, one of the reasons that I don't have horses and won't for the rest of my life is because of what happened when I got on a horse that was supposedly broken. And for reasons yet unknown, the horse reared up and bucked me off squarely onto our riding lawnmower. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that that wasn't exactly what I was saying at the time, but it was painful, and it was scary, and it was angry at the horse. And now every every professional says, well, you just need to hop right back on that. (laughs) That was not happening, not in the least. But I realized that the, that the difficult process of breaking a horse is what you and I have to go through when we're in this process of learning to control the self. But breaking yourself can be done, and by the way, it is worth it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Peter did not write the letter to the Corinthians, but... I have no doubt that he would agree with the sentiment that Paul wrote to the church. A church, by the way, that was struggling a great deal with many areas of self-control. He said, If you think you are standing firm, this is verse 12, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's important that we understand that that when we're learning to control the flesh, there will be things that the flesh desires and that we have to tell ourselves no to. By God's power and by God's grace. And that every time the flesh is tempted, God provides this escape route, this, this side exit that we can flee from what is tempting us. And God promises not to put anything in there that's too strong, too powerful for us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 or just read it there off the slide. The writer of Hebrews says this. He's speaking. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Any kind of discipline, particularly self-discipline, is painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Do you understand that self-control, though it's painful, it can be done. And once you get it done, once you can comfortably slide the bit into the horse's mouth, Slide up on the saddle, and you'll have some of the most wonderful experiences on horseback when that horse is fully trained. It can be done, and it is worth it. You just have to push through the pain, which is what our third point is. I want to encourage you to endure the pain to get the prize. The verse that was read for us by Justin, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run 
that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a crown that will not last. But we to receive one that is imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It is painful. When you tell yourself no, especially to something that the flesh wants, that's not going to be a pleasant experience. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. The more you learn to break yourself and to control yourself, the more you begin to learn to yield to God. Not speaking from personal experience, but I understand that those of you who are runners, especially those of you who run crazy distances like 5Ks and half marathons and full marathons and ultra marathons, multiple miles. I've never, I've never run a five. I'm not even sure I've ever run a K, but (laughs) whatever race you're running in is a process where you keep pushing your body and your body keeps telling you, nope, 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 tired, hurt, don't want to do it. Stop, please. And it's this back and forth between your brain and your body. And you're battling against, it's a really a hard battle. In fact, people who run marathons, I understand, hit something called the wall. Which is actually not running into a wall physically, which would hurt a lot. But you're having this mental wall of you just can't force your body to go any farther. And runners will tell you the only way to beat the wall is to push through the wall. And once you push through the wall, then victory is all but assured. Unless you fall, unless you have some sort of unexpected injury, something happens. Once you push through the wall, you can make it to the end. Think about your walls in your life. Uh, Christ followers not only have the obligation to control ourselves physically... But we have the obligation to control ourselves mentally. You can have the thought, but you are not to entertain the thought. You may have the urge, but you should not yield to every urge. We must learn to yield to God instead of yielding to ourselves. And sometimes in the process of doing that, you'll hit a wall and you just go, "Uh, what is the point? Ah, Man, I just keep messing up. Ah, I shouldn't even be here. You're hitting the wall. And the only way to beat the wall is to press through it. Self-control is key. Uh, to, to win a race, a runner's got to learn a few things. He's got to learn to pace himself or herself. He's got to remove every unnecessary weight just to run with the bare minimum of things with him or her. To focus completely and fully on the goal. Self-control is a step-by-step process. But the the harder you push through the wall, the more likely it is you will make it through the wall. The good news is that God has a couple of things to help us. The first, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. I want you to turn in your Bibles, though it is going to be on the screen. I want you to turn there because I want you to be reminded, write down, underline, highlight, whatever you do. And be reminded of the importance of grace within our race. 
For the grace of God, Titus chapter 2 says, has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. That's throwing aside those weights. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. See, that, that grace trains us to do two things, to renounce, to leave behind all of the old and to embrace and run towards all that God has in mind for us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Grace, we all understand this. Grace is the only way we get into the race. You know, if heaven's not a gift, none of us are getting in. Grace is through Jesus Christ and by yielding obedience to him. And we enter the race by his grace. And grace keeps us going in the race. It reminds us of what we're not just what we're running from, but what we're running for and what we're running towards. The second help in this race is not really an it, but a he. That he's name is the Holy Spirit. He's a helper running with us, within us, along the way. We have a powerful partner with us. Peter and the apostles, if you think about this from their perspective, they had Jesus with them. I mean, what a cool experience. I mean, whenever you had a question, whenever you needed a story explained, whenever you wondered how something was supposed to go or what you were supposed to do, I mean, Jesus was just right there. You could just... Ask him. Wouldn't that be cool? So imagine that after three years of having Jesus right next to them, answering every question, guiding them all along the way, all of a sudden, Jesus says this. I'm getting ready to leave. I'm not going to be with you anymore. And their reaction is what we would expect. Well, what? How are we supposed to do this without you? How are we supposed to do this on our own? Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another counselor, to be with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. Jesus called him a helper when you're baptized into Christ. You not only are entered into the race... But you get a running partner, someone to run alongside you and show you the way and help you. And he's pointing you back to God's word and he's reminding you of God's truths and he's helping you stay in the race, especially when it's so easy, when you hit that wall and you just want to give up, when you want to give over to the the desires of the flesh and the urges of the flesh. The key to self-control is to give up control. The key to self-control is to give up control. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul speaking here to the church at Galatia, and he says this concerning our walk. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. 
So when we yield to the spirit, the spirit helps us to walk by the spirit. The spirit helps us stay in tuned with God's will and the promises of God's word. The spirit will never tell you to do something that's contradictory to what God teaches in his word. But the spirit is a helper to run alongside you and to help you. By the way, the more that you yield to the flesh, the easier it becomes to yield to the flesh. When those little children were eating marshmallows, when the one girl just took a tiny nibble, it was over, right? And she began to nibble and to nibble and to nibble and to nibble. Once she began to yield to her flesh, the flesh wants more and more and more. And we know that, but understand this, the opposite of that is true as well. That when you begin to yield to the spirit and you take little nibbles and you begin to trust him here and there and you begin to, to, to do what he says to do, even though it's hard, and even though it's difficult and you don't want to do it and your flesh doesn't want you to do it. But you yield to the spirit little by little. You know what happens to the spirit? The spirit wants more and more, too. The spirit lives within us. He yearns jealously. He wants control. And so the more we yield to him, the more he takes over and the easier it becomes. Do you understand what I'm saying? That yielding to the flesh is an exponential decision, just like yielding to the spirit is. The more we yield to either, the more we grow in either direction. So may we choose wisely. May we yield to the spirit that we might keep in step with the spirit. The only way to, to get self-control is to give up control and to yield full control to the spirit, to put your heart, your mind, your body, your soul, just as we sang about moments ago, under the control of Jesus. I ask you this morning, are you under the full control of Jesus? Does his spirit control you? Is he helping you? And more importantly, are you listening and yielding to him? Ah, the good news is you don't have to do this alone. And I think that's the problem most of us get into. We think, I'm just going to do it on my own. I'm going to try harder and I'm going to be better. And, I'm gonna do... and God's like, why? For why in the world would you try to do it? I didn't. My grace got you to this point. Do you think my grace isn't going to help you beyond this point? He wants you to win the race. He wants you to be successful. He knows it's hard. Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. So he understands, and he wants us to yield and trust and obey and put ourselves fully under his control. If you haven't done that, this morning would be a good time to do that, to begin yielding to Jesus, to do simply what he said to do, to believe, to trust him, and to be buried into him for the remission of your sins. And not only to receive the forgiveness of your sins, but to receive that helper the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who helps us each step of the way. journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And this morning, that step can be yours if you'll just have the courage to take it. If you need help, if you need our prayers, if you need to be in Jesus Christ, if you've been yielding to the flesh and you just need to begin yielding to the Spirit, let us help you do that this morning. That's what church is for. We're here to help one another. And that's what we're here to do. We call you. Make that first step. We'll meet you down front as together we stand and sing.